So we're looking at the excellent word part two as we continue on our odyssey through Psalm 119. And so we've covered two sections last week. We'll cover three sections this week. Uh, Just a reminder that this psalm is broken down into 22 sections of eight verses each. And then in the original Hebrew, each of those verses starts with a certain um, Hebrew uh, letter. Uh, And so we we saw um, last week, we saw that first section starts with a Hebrew letter Aleph, the second with Beth, and now we're going to move on from there. And, but, but really what I want to focus on, and this is what we're going to see all throughout Psalm 119, is that it, the, the focus on knowing God through his word. Okay, is knowing God through his word. And, and I believe that God can speak to us directly, and I believe that God does speak to us directly, but sometimes we get a little goofy with that. And I hear people saying, well, God told me this or God told me that. And I know clearly from the scriptures that God didn't tell them that because that's not what the scriptures say. And so we have to be aware of that. We have to be wise. We have to say, well, I believe God spoke this thing to me, but let me see if that goes along with his word. Because if you come to me and say, well, Steve, God told me that I will never have another tribulation again in this life. I would say, well, either you're going to die really quickly (laughs) or you didn't hear from the Lord. Because in Romans 5, it says that we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So I know because of what the word of God says that that's not what, that wasn't the Lord speaking to me. That was just my own fallen flesh that wants things to be easy. And so the more, we we know this in, in human relationships, that the more we truly listen to the words of an honest person, the more we'll get to know them. And then notice I said the unhonest person. Because we've all been around people who, lied to us. We've all been around people who we listened to them intently and we found out later they weren't telling us the truth. But we also have been around people who are honest and if we'll sit down and listen to that honest person, we'll get to know them. We'll know what's going on inside of them, what their their hopes and their dreams, their aspirations, their goals, all of those things. Well, that's how it is as you and I sit before the word of God. God is honest. And so if we will sit and truly listen to the word of God, As God speaks to us through his word, we're going to get to know him. And there's no other way. There's no other way to truly know God outside of his word. That's just how it works. And so that's important for us to remind ourselves as we move through these sections of scripture. All right. So Psalm 119, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 24. And the Hebrew letter there is Gamal. I believe that's how it is. I listen to it over and over online to try to figure it out, and I even have myself pronunciation notes. I still failed. Uh, but I believe it's Gamal. And so what I want to do with each of these sections today is I want to give you two words for each section. So the two words I want to give you for this first section are servants and strangers. Servants and strangers. And that will kind of give us kind of a, a, a focus as we move through each of these sections. So servants and strangers as we move through verses 17 through 24. So let's look at verse 17 here of Psalm 119. It says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. So I want to look at, first of all, at this deal bountifully. This deal bountifully means to do good to or to bring a good reward. Um, It's kind of the idea that if you work hard as a farmer and you plant your crops and you care for your crops, that you're expecting that's going to be a harvest. You're expecting to to have that bountiful harvest. And so that's what the psalmist is asking for the Lord. But notice he says, deal bountifully with your servant. This is vitally important. If we want to live a life that is ultimately bountiful, a life that we ultimately are rewarded for, a life that's meaningful and purposeful, we have to recognize that we're servants. There's no other way. 
Unfortunately, the American dream, quote unquote, is being the top, climbing the corporate ladder, being the boss. I want to rule over others. That's how I should do things. But Jesus said, you see how the Gentiles act? And he's, he's talking about unbelievers. He says, they want to lord it over other people. They want to be the boss and demand. But he says, don't be like them. If you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. So it's vitally important. If we want to live a life that counts not only for this life, but for eternity, we need to acknowledge that master-servant relationship. We must acknowledge that we are servants and that God is our master. So, so this is a vital truth, though, because when we think about master-servant, it's very easy for us. Maybe we've you know, watched movies, and it's like in the Middle Ages, and there's this, this powerful Lord, and there's that, that his servant, he beats him, and he treats him, and we can kind of convey that to the Lord. That's not how the Lord works. God is the master, and the scriptures tell us he will reward his faithful servants. God wants to reward you. God wants you to be in an obedient place as a servant so that he might reward you. Let me give you some verses that speak to this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them for you. First one's Matthew chapter 10, verse 44. Jesus says, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Here's what I want you to see from the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus says, If you do something as small, as in faith, offering a cup of water to somebody, God sees that and God will reward that. So Jesus is using an argument, what's called the, the lesser to the greater. In other words, if God will reward you giving a cup of water to somebody, or you know, in our day and age, giving a Starbucks to somebody, or whatever the case may be, if you give that to them, if he'll reward you for the smallest thing, won't he reward you for the greater thing? But, but the thing is, it's going to take faith on our part. If we're going to truly live out this life as a servant, we have to trust that God will reward us later. You guys are probably familiar, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. In there, Jesus addresses this human tendency to want to do things to be rewarded by men. So he says things like, hey, when you give, don't give in such a way so that people can pat you on the back because he says you'll receive reward from them, not from the Father. When you pray, don't go in the marketplaces and pray loudly so men can think how spiritual you are. You have your reward from them and not from the Father. And he says when, when you fast, don't go around being like, oh, I just don't feel so good because I've been fasting so much. He said don't do that because you're looking for reward from men and God won't reward you. So here's the, the, the distinction for you and I. Do I want a temporary reward from man, or do I want an eternal reward from God? And the thing for us is that because we're time-bound, because we're impatient, we often exchange the eternal reward for the temporary. It's never a good deal. So learning to be patient and trust, okay, I'm a servant, God's a good master, when the time comes, he will reward me. Next verse I'll give you along these lines is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes, and he's talking about how there's different people in the ministry, and it's Paul and Apollos and Peter, and they have different roles. And he uses the example of, of, of farming, right? On a, on a large farm, you don't only have one guy. You have multiple people doing different things. And so this is what he says. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. In other words, the planter and the waterer are working together. Though they have different roles, they're working on the same crop, and God sees that and doesn't say, well, I only like planters. I'm not a big fan of waterers. That's ridiculous. 
that God sees both and he's going to reward each one according to his own labor. So the person who plants faithfully, God reward him. The person who waters faithfully, God will reward them. That's, that's who God is. And that frees us. Now we can become servants because we're not looking to be rewarded by people. We're not serving so that people can say to us, oh, you're just such a great servant. We're not doing that because th- there's an old saying within Calvary Chapel circles, and, and I'm always surprised when it happens to me, but it says this, you never know if you're a servant until you're treated like one. You never know if you're a servant until you're treated like one. And so oftentimes, I'll think I have a servant's heart, and somebody will be like, you know, jerky to me about that, and be like, well, who are you? Don't you know I'm a servant? And that's the wrong attitude. That's not how it should be. And so choosing to say, well, God's my master. God's my rewarder. I'm not looking for my reward from people. I'm called to serve them, and we'll see what happens. Hebrews 11.6 ties this all together. I would encourage you guys to make note of Hebrews 11.6, to memorize Hebrews 11.6, to underline it, to asterisk it, because it's, it's an incredibly important verse. It says this, but without faith, notice, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So a couple of things to notice here. Number one is, If a person doesn't have faith in God, they cannot please him. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter, you know, how many hospitals they build or how many poor they feed. If they are not doing it through faith in God, it's not pleasing to God. It's a radical thing. I didn't write it. The Holy Spirit did. Okay, but the, the other part of that is that we also have to believe in that faith that God's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, when we don't believe that God will reward us, that displeases God. That, that when we say, well, I'm just doing this and it doesn't matter about the reward from God and he probably won't reward me anyway because I'm a poor, sad soul. That's displeasing to God. You know why? Because it's questioning his character. You expect, you know, that if you work hard, that, you know, whoever your bosses are are going to see that and, and they're going to reward you accordingly. And, and, and the world's, rewards of this world, you know, maybe give you a different position, maybe give you a pay raise, all that kind of stuff. So when we do things in the power of the Holy Spirit to serve God, and we say, well, he's probably not going to reward me, we're questioning his character. We're saying that, well, my boss at work is of, of greater character than the God who created the universe. That's a radical thing. Because please, uh, please hear me. When we actually just trust God's going to reward, God's good, he, ha- he knows what's best, whatever I have coming to him from him, he'll give it to me, then what happens is that changes our service. Because now all of a sudden we're free and easy with our service. We can serve anybody, anytime. Why? Because that person doesn't need to reward us. God will. And, and so it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. and It's incredibly freeing to realize that, that he's the master and we're the servant. All right, continuing on in verse 17. Notice, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Okay, so the psalmist wants God to do good to him, to reward him so that he might live a life of obedience to God and his word. So, so what I want to bring out here is the rewards God gives us aren't only in the life to come. Okay, the permanent ones are in the life to come, but think about how God has rewarded you as you have been obedient to his word, how God has rewarded you in this life. Think about as you walk in obedience to him, the relationships that you have. Think about the friendships you have. Think about the opportunities you have. Like, like I, I was telling some people this week, I am incredibly spoiled 
because I teach the word of God many, many times every week. I teach Bible classes, I teach here at church, I do all these different things, and every time I do that, that's an incredible reward. I leave the classroom every time just so excited I get to do this. That's a reward that God has given me because he's a good master. And so please understand that, that God will reward you, you know, finally in heaven, but he also gives you rewards along the way because in his timing. And so that's what the psalmist wants here. He wants to be provided for, rewarded by God so that he might keep on in obedience to God and his word. And so the, the key for us really here is we have to be willing to obey. The, w- there's no such thing as unwilling obedience. <laughs> it's, it's not, a, obedience has to in, engage the will. Let's move on to verse 18 here, a beautiful verse. It says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. It's interesting, right? Because uh, the the devil has quite the uh, PR campaign that reading God's word is drudgery, right? Uh, I have to read the word of God, and oh, just this thing, and I just got to keep doing it. But what does the psalmist say? He says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law, that it's beautiful, that it's wonderful, that it's amazing. And so pray for this. I I would ask you to make this a prayer. Make verse 18 a prayer. Lord, open my eyes so I may see wondrous things from your law. You can say to him, Lord, the the word of God right now, it's dry to me. I'm not feeling it. I don't don't see it. Would you open my eyes? There's a wonderful verse that ties into this. Luke 24, verse 45. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's, he's been resurrected, and it comes to his disciples, and it says this, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He illuminated them. So, so this, is, this is a little theological term. There's something called the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit can enable you to understand and enjoy the word of God. There was a weird thing that, that used to happen to me. I didn't become a believer until late in college. You know, I was, I was 22 years old when I became a believer, but I remember I would go home like during off time from college and we had a Bible in the room and I would open up the Bible. And it was like, you know, those old, uh, it was like a, the black cover Bibles and it was like this pinkish red on the, on the edges of the pages. I don't know if you guys ever seen those kind. Uh, but I remember that and I would open it and I would start reading from the beginning and I would get all to the names. So-and-so begot, so-and-so, so begot. And I'd be like, all right, close it for next time. And I wouldn't read it again until I came back around. It, it meant nothing to me because I wasn't someone born again by the Spirit, I didn't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, so it's just drudgery. So if you're in that place today and you have no desire for the Word of God, then I'll first of all ask you, have you been born again by the Spirit? Like, have you, have you truly believed? And if you say, I have, yes, I know that I'm a believer, but I still, then pray for that. Pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Pray for God to give you a desire to know his word and to see his word clearly. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. It says, and so, so we've looked at servant, right? Now we see stranger. It says, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. Okay, so here we are. We're servants and strangers. That's important for us to understand. Because if we're servants, but we consider this world our home, they would expect that everything is going to go right between us and our master. 
whether a master is going to have all sovereignty here or those kind of things, and it's going to work out right. But we've realized, well, no, no, God is still the sovereign overall, but the scripture says that the, Satan is a god of this age, uh, that the whole world lies under the sway of him, then we're going to realize, okay, well, I'm going to serve, but it's not always going to work out right now. I'm going to serve, and it's not always going to feel good. Why? Because I'm also a stranger. And so it's important that we hold those two, two things in tension, that I'm a servant and a stranger, that I'm serving God, but so many people in the house of this world aren't serving him well. So we're servants and strangers in, in this world, and what do we need here? Notice, do not hide your commandments for, from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. The psalmist is saying, as strangers, we need the word of God as both our anchor and our foundation. Anchor and foundation. Those are two really important um, you know, pictures or images of scripture uses. An anchor and a foundation. What does an anchor do? Well, when you're out there in the tumultuous waters, an anchor holds you in place, right? Or maybe it's not even tumultuous. Maybe there's just a current. And if you don't have that anchor, you just start drifting. And so we need to be anchored by the word of God, but we also need foundation. Why do we need a foundation? Because God is expecting to build the life that we have here. And so we need that foundation of the word of God so that we'll build our life properly. So it's really important for us to understand that. And to remind you of that, would you turn to Matthew chapter 7? Turn to Matthew chapter 7, looking at how, as strangers, the word of God needs to be our foundation because God does expect us, even though we are strangers, to build a life here. Now, we know that it's not our permanent home, right? We know that these bodies are tents, and one day we're going to have to pack up and move on. Uh, but, but here it is, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, again reminding us that as servants and strangers, the word of God must be the foundation of our lives. Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, notice, and does them. That's the link. It's not enough to hear. It's actually you've got to obey. Hear them and then does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Strong foundation. The rain descended and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So here's very, very clearly for us as servants and strangers, how are we to build a life that, that honors God? We're to do it in a way of hearing the word of God and then obeying it. Hearing the word of God and doing it. We sing about that, right? There's, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to hear and obey. That's what we're called to. Now, you know, as, as you hear me say these things, and you know, I'm very exhortative. I know, it's just how God made me. It's very easy for, for you to come in, if you don't know me very well, to say, well, you know, Steve's just getting after me, and that's kind of what pastors do, and they're big meanies, and all that kind of stuff. And I just want to say, in all sincerity, that's not my heart. I, I really want the absolute best in life for everyone in this room. But not only for the people in this room. I want the absolute best in life for every person on planet Earth, and the only way that can happen is for people to submit themselves to the word of God, to the God of the word, and build their lives in obedience to him. That's the only way. So the reason why I say these things the way that I do is because I'm wanting that thing. Now, in my fallenness, sometimes I might be overly zealous. I trip over words. I do all those kind of things. You'll, ho hopefully, you'll be graciously forgive me for that. But this is the reality I'm not going through the motions. 
I'm not coming and sharing these things with you every week because that's my job to do. If God came to me tomorrow and said, Steve, your time as a pastor is done, I'll say, okay, here's the key. Here's the key to the church. Thank you for the opportunity. What do you want from me next? The only reason I do this here and I do it at school is because I want people to walk in obedience to God. I want them one day to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful for a few things. Hey, here is your reward. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the only reason. That, that's what God's put on my heart. So, so I, hopefully you understand that. Ho- hopefully that, that's coming across to you because I want the best for you. I want when you stand before the Lord to, to see him and to say, hey, I, I did what he told me to do. None of us are going to do it perfectly. I know that. But I, but I want to exhort you every time I see you to help you move in that direction. And I want you every time you see me to help exhort me in that direction as well. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 119. Looking at verse 21 now. It says, you rebuke the proud and cursed. Sorry, you, you, you rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. And, and so this is a radical thing because notice what it's saying. The, who are the proud? Well, the proud are those who refuse to recognize that they're servants of God. The proud are those who f- refuse to recognize that God's their master. And, and so they, they don't obey him, right? The proud don't listen, they don't obey. And so what does the psalmist say? He says that also they're cursed. Now, not because God wants to curse them, but because there's a curse that comes with disobeying the word of God. That's just how it is. And so he's saying, uh, you know, you rebuke the cursed who stray from your commandments. Here's a simple idea, simple truth. Disobedience to the word of God brings judgment. Just disobedience to the word of God brings judgment. And so if if we'd like less judgment in our life, let's bring in more obedience. (laughs) Now for the believer, it's not a final judgment, right? For the believer, it's chastening, it's rebuke, it's those sort of things. But it's just very simple. Verses 22 and 23, remove uh, from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also um, sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. So obeying God and his word will cause people to rise up against us. As we seek to serve the Lord, then what's going to happen? We're going to be reproached. We're going to be held in contempt by people. Princes, that's speaking about people who are in authority. They're going to stand up against us. Do you know this? Right? This is the way of the world. They didn't crucify Jesus because they agreed with him. Right? The authorities crucified Jesus because he's telling them the truth. They don't like it. They don't want to submit to it. They've got to get rid of him. And so Jesus says, as the master is, so shall the servant be. If they persecuted the master, if they went after the master, then they're going to go after the servant. And, and here's the, the ironic thing. The more that we look like Jesus, prime, you know, in general, the more that we look like Jesus in general, the more that believers will love us and the more that unbelievers will hate us. In general, that's how it's going to work. And so it's important for us to understand that. And so would you turn near the end of your Bibles? I, I want you to see this in 1 Peter. I would encourage you to, as you're turning to 1 Peter, um, if, if you're going through tribulation right now and difficulty and, and you can't really tell which way is up, read back through First and Second Peter. First and Second Peter are wonderful 
um, epistles to read when you're struggling, when you're just like, I don't know why these things are happening. Is this how it should be in the Christian life? It's a good encouragement to realize, no, no, it's going to be difficult in the Christian life. There's going to be hardship. Um, And so 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter's going to talk about this, about how when you move from being an unbeliever to a believer, the unbelievers can't understand why you're different now, and then also they're going to kind of come after you about that. So 1 Peter 4, I'm going to just read verses 1 through 5. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That word ceased means to refrain from, pause, take leave of. In other words, that they were to let go that old life. Notice that he should that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. That that's a servant. I'm sorry, that's that's a stranger phrase. Right? Rest of his time. That tells us that we only have a limited amount of time in this life. That we're not we're not meant to stay here. That we should live the rest of his time in the flesh. It means in, in his human body, for the, not for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So we lived for a certain time as servants of our own flesh or as servants of the devil. Now we've shifted our allegiance. We're servants to Christ. Christ is our master. And so what's happened is saying, I wasted all that time doing the wrong thing. Whatever time I have left, let me do the will of the Father. Let me, let me do the will of the true master. Verse 3, this is what he expands on. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime, that's our, our life as unbelievers, in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, here it is, they think it's strange, so the unbelievers think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. So now that you become a believer, you don't live that old lifestyle. And they say, what's going on? What's different? Why are you doing this? And then maybe they're talking about you bad on Facebook, right? They're saying, oh, I can't believe. And oh, he's a Christian now, but he's a really hypocrite. I know what he used to do and all that kind of stuff. And, and so what, what, what Paul says, I'm sorry, what Peter says here is, don't worry about that. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But what I want to point it out is, Whenever you, you really seek, and I, I want to be a servant of God, and God is my master, it's not going to be the red carpet out for you. <laughs> it's going to be the way of the cross, right? Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So, so being a servant and a stranger is the best life possible, but it's not the easiest life possible. Okay, it's going to be a challenge, all right? Sorry, let's turn back to Psalm 119 into verse 24 now. We read this. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. I love that. Now, notice the context. It's in the midst of persecution. It's in the midst of mistreatment. It's in the midst of people reproaching him, uh, showing contempt for him. It's in the midst of of, uh, authorities rising up against him. In the midst of that, he says, hey, Lord, your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. The Bible is not a fair weather book. It's not a book for just days where everything is sunny and shining and everything's going well and plenty of money in the bank account. It's great on those days, but it's also great when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's great for every day. So, so what the, the key is uh, for us here in verse 25, 24 is in the midst of mistreatment and persecution, instead of binging shows to forget about our, our troubles for a time, is to get into the word of God to delight in the word of God, to take counsel in the word of God. And that word delight means exactly what you would think it means. It means enjoyment. 
that, that there's enjoyment in the word of God. And then the word counselors there, it means those who give advice, plans, and purpose. Those who give advice, plans, and purpose. In other words, when you don't know where to turn, what to do, come to the word of God, and it'll give you advice, plans, and purpose. And it, it'll show you a direction to go to. Now, it won't, you can't go here and it says, uh, yes, um, move to Tahoe. It doesn't say that, Okay. But it will tell you principles of life to live by. It'll tell you things like seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. It'll say things like don't worry about tomorrow. It'll say things like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. It'll, and you start living that way as a servant. Now what's happened? The master will open up the directions you need to go. All right, let's move on to our second section here. That's Psalm 119. Verses 25 through 32, the Hebrew letter is daleth here. And here's the two words I have for you, revive and run. Revive and run. God wants to revive us so that we might run the race of faith. Revive and run. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. All right, so this is very vivid imagery, soul clinging to the dust. Um, you've probably seen this, uh, a movie where a person's like going across a desert, right? And they're, they're struggling through the desert and they're covered with sand and they're dry and they're, they're scooping handfuls of sand as they go. That's the imagery. That, that as this guy, as a believer, someone who loves God, who loves his word, is clinging to the dust. Whatever is going on in his life, he's down low, and so again, it's a reminder, when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, when we're clinging to the dust, seek life in God's word. That word revive means to give life, to revive life. We, we've all been in that situation where we're really thirsty and we just feel terrible and we're dehydrated and you start getting those fluids back in your body and all of a sudden, like, oh, my brain works again. <laughs> now I can think again. Now I can move again. Jeremiah, for my money, had one of the most difficult ministries in all of the Bible, incredibly difficult ministry for 40 years, you know, preaching people, telling people to turn lest they fall into judgment. Most people didn't listen. But this is what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And so here's my argument that if Jeremiah, in the midst of the horrifying ministry he had to conduct, was rejoiced in the word of God, revived in the word of God, can't God revive you and I through his word? Right? Because I don't think any of us would stand here today and say, oh, I, th I pretty much think my ministry is worse than Jeremiah's ministry. It's more difficult than Jeremiah's ministry. I, I don't think that that's true. So if it could revive Jeremiah, if God's word can revive Jeremiah, it can revive us. All right, verses 26 and 27, I have declared my ways and you answered me, teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. Okay, so I've declared my ways. The idea is that when we go to God, we share our heart with God. How does God respond? He responds by taking us back to his word. So, so we're like pour out ourselves before, this happened to me last week. Last Sunday, I was kind of processing through things and praying to God about it. He gave me verses, just clearly. And I've been meditating on those verses all week and thinking about those verses all week. And that's what he does. He takes us back to his word over and over again. And, and so there's, there's, don't ever fall for these. Sometimes people think they're so spiritual, they don't need to read the Bible anymore. 
And I've kind of heard these people, well, I'm just kind of beyond that. You're not, you're not beyond that. Nobody's beyond that. When Jesus rebuked the devil there in Matthew chapter 4, he used the word of God to rebuke the devil. He didn't just say, well, I'm Jesus, get out. He used Deuteronomy to do that. So if Jesus never, if you will, outgrew the word of God, you and I are never going to outgrow the word of God. Verse 28 says, now here's, here's again, this is similar to verse 25. My soul melts from heaviness. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. And so here, please rem- remember this. Even people who love God's word will struggle with life in this fallen world. Even if you're praying and you're reading and you're serving and you're like, you have a tendency to be like, I'm checking all the boxes, still going to have struggle, still going to have difficulty, still going to be weary unto death at times. So read the biblical characters, you'll see that that's true all throughout. So it's important for us to understand that. And, and then I, I really want you to, to that, that my soul melts from heaviness, it's the idea of melting down. And we've used that verbiage, right? Melting down. Uh, you know, a little kid who hasn't had their nap, <laughs> they begin to melt down. They're overwhelmed. You know, depending on how you like to pronounce it, gifs or gifs uh, that you put on your phone. I, I love to give those of where a guy's walking and he just like slowly falls to the ground. Right? You guys have seen that. Or the little baby, she, you know, the little toddler's there and she just puts her head down because she can't take it anymore. That's what's going on here. We're going to experience this as believers. Our soul is going to melt from heaviness. But notice, where do we turn? The, the psalmist says here, strengthen me according to your word. Now, this word strengthen is, is majestic. It's wonderful. Please hear me. This word strengthen means the physical action of rising up to stand. The physical action of rising up to stand. You know, guys love action movies in general. And we love an action movie where the, you know, the hero gets beat up and it's, you know, like the old Rocky movies and Drago has to break him, you know, and Drago's beating him up and he just slowly stands back up to fight some more. That's the idea. This world is going to knock you down. This world is going to punish you. This world is going to hurt you. You are going to break at times. You're going to bleed at times. God's word can cause you to rise back up. God, by his spirit, can give you the strength to do it. We've seen it time and time and time again in a very literal way. We saw when Paul was stoned, perhaps unto death, and then he gets back up and goes into the city. God can do that. You and I can't do that, but God can. And so the key here, though, for you and I, we must actively engage with the word of God if we're to be strengthened by it. This won't happen apart from us being in the word of God. God, I I believe that God has given me wisdom in the word of God and strength in the word of God. Why? Because he's put me in it for 25 plus years. And so that's, it's him. He does that. And I'm no special circumstance. Anyone who is willing to actively engage with the word of God and be obedient to the Holy Spirit, you can be strengthened by God's word. That's what he'll do. Verse 29 and 30. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth, your judgments I have laid before me. Okay, so he's being, he's being revived by the word of God. He's running the race. And what we see here is, is two choices, the way of truth and the way of lying. Right? Verse 29, we have the way of lying. Verse 30, we have the way of truth. It's mutually exclusive. 
Do I want to go the way of truth or do I want to go the way of lying? So obeying God's word will keep us in the way of truth. And disobeying God's word will put us in the way of lying. And this is a very old story. Would you turn back to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see the first circumstance of this, of the choice. Will I follow the way of truth or will I follow the way of lying? Genesis 3, just want to look at verses 1 through 8. And this is, you know, it is called the fall, the fall of man. Now it says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so the serpent, you know, we commonly refer to him that well, we, we believe that that's the devil, and, and that's absolutely true. And if you want some uh, correlation for that, I don't have a slide for it, but it's, it's Revelation chapter 12. If you go to Revelation chapter 12 and you read through that, you'll see that this serpent is in fact the devil. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, this is step one. Satan has a, a three-step program to get us on the way of lying. Step one is to question God's word. That's, that's always step one. Did God say that? Did, did he really say that? The woman responds, you may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tr- fruit of the tree of the garden, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, this is a bad situation because she, she's now in a, in a conversation, a little debate with Satan. It doesn't work well. I would encourage you not to get in a debate with Satan. I would encourage you to turn from Satan to God's word. Okay, I, I, I think that that's, that's the wiser. Now, obviously, sometimes maybe it can't be avoided. And so Jesus has already laid out the model for us in Matthew chapter 4 that if we can't avoid this direct confrontation with Satan, we need to rebuke him by the word of God. We need to share the word of God with him, not any kind of things that, oh, our power, our ability. Now, okay, so to step one, questioning God's word. Here we have step two, verse four. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. That's denying God's word. So Satan begins with questioning God's word, right? It's kind of the soft opening. Well, did God say? And then he goes to denial. You won't die. So questioning God's word, then denying God's word, and now the stage is set for the final. Verse five, here it is. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is questioning God's goodness. Questioning God's goodness. God's holding out on you. If God loved you, he'd give you this thing, right? And it's over and over again, right? If, if, if God really were for you, it would be fine for you to sleep with your boyfriend, right? It's, uh, it's, it's God's holding out on you. If, if, if God were good, he would allow you to just do whatever you want. And, and so this is how Satan works. He questions God's word. He deny God's word, denies God's word. And then he questions God's goodness. And then see what happens next. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband with her and he ate. And so this is the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's all, all sin is categorized into, into those three. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So now they're in the way of lying, right, because they pursued Satan. And here's what happens. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day. And Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What, is that, what does a way of lying do? It's, it's a way of hiding. Now I've got to hide things. I hear God coming around. I've got to hide from him. 
The relationship is broken. Fellowship is broken. And so that's what sin costs us. That's what the way of lying costs us is that we have to start hiding from God. I, don't, I, really, I really don't want to go to church today. I don't really want to go to fellowship today because I really haven't been doing what I should. And so we're just, just hiding. It's the same old thing. And, and so the, 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 you know, the good thing about all of this is that God is willing to put us back on the, on the path of truth. Right? We don't have time to read the rest of the story. As you're turning back to Psalm 119, you know what God does is there's, there's a, a curse associated, and we're dealing with that curse. But what is God? God slays an animal to make clothes to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And God still has a purpose and plan. He's still going to bring the Messiah through this couple. And, and so it's important for us to understand that, but that if we choose to walk the way of lying, it's going to cost us because as servants, we're to be obedient to our master. God is going to revive us so that we can run this race on the way of truth, not in the way of lying. Verse 31 says uh, of Psalm 119, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, do not put me to shame. So it's this idea, this clinging is this idea of holding tight. So we're to hold tight to God's word. We're to walk in obedience to God's word. And what will happen? It'll keep us from being ashamed. Notice I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, do not put me to shame. As we walk the way of truth, we don't have to be ashamed. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's, there's this wonderful thing that we can live lives without shame as we're walking in the truth. And the good news is the Holy Spirit will give us the power to walk in the truth. I love this. 1 John 2, verse 28 says this, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. As we walk in obedience to him, as whenever we do sin, we confess our sins to him. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What will happen is whenever Jesus comes back, we won't be ashamed. We're, we're looking forward to him coming back. So if you're in a place today when you're ashamed of his coming, you're nervous about the rapture, you're nervous about the bama seed of Christ, will he'll judge your works as believer, sit down with him. Work it out now. Confess your sins to him now. Ask him to put you on the, the way of truth now. Ask him to revive you according to his word now. Ask him to help you run the race now so you don't have to continue to live in shame. God doesn't want you to live in that shame. Verse 32, I will run the course of your commandments for you shall enlarge my heart. The idea here is that God empowers us to run the race of faith. God is the one who empowers us to run the race of faith. It's not like we've got to do it because we all know as you get older, you don't run as well. <laughs> you know, like I, I would love to run uh, 10 yards, but it's going to take me about 45 minutes to stretch uh, before, I, before I can do that. And that's exactly what we hear. But let me give you a verse that, that speaks to this truth. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And I love the, and I think there's a scriptural warrant for this, is like when you're a young believer, you're mounting up with wings like eagles, and you're going for it, and you're doing these things. You get a little older, and you can't fly anymore. And so, you, well, like, I can still run. And then you get a little bit older, like, well, let me just walk without fainting. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the progression, Right? Because it's interesting what God can do in our lives as he kind of slows us down physically. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man's being renewed day by day. Then all of a sudden we have a wisdom to actually share with people because we're not in a hurry to get somewhere. 
We're walking the way of truth, and now we don't pass people by because we're accomplishing our agenda, but instead, we have time to spend with people. We have time to build relationship with people. And and so, please understand that God is going to empower you to run the course, but running the course is not this idea of like running as quickly as possible. It's the idea of running at the pace God calls you to run. And sometimes in your life, it may be a walk. And and sometimes that race, you just have to stand. And so please understand that God is able to revive us so that we may run the race set before us. Last section, Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. I think I could pronounce this when he is the letter. Um, And and then the two words I want to give you are teach and turn. Teach and turn. Verse 33 Notice, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes that I may keep it to the end. I love this. I love this. It's it's us asking God to teach us his ways so that we might obey his ways to the end of our lives. Isn't that what you want to be? You want to have a, a life as a believer that you finish, that you finish well. And so I love what Paul was able to write in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And and so so this is what, as God teaches us his word, he's teaching us so that we might finish this race, that we might finish the course. It's it's Hebrews 1 and 2, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right? Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and, and running unto him. This is a beautiful picture that God can enable us to finish the race as he teaches us his word. Verse 34, give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. So what I want you to focus on here is the idea of the whole heart. So of, of giving ourselves completely over to God's word. That as he teaches us, Um, whatever he wants to change, whatever he wants to take care of, whatever he wants to remove, whatever he wants to build, that we're open to it, that we're not compartmentalized, that we're not like, well, Lord, I'm gonna give you access to most of my life, but these things over here belong to me. No, we wanna give our whole heart to him. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Now I have to say that, that how it's, Um, translated here in the New King James really appeals to me. This make me walk in the path, because it kind of makes me think of like, well, I don't have to do anything. God can just be the the marionette, and I'm on the string, and he could just move me wherever, and I can just kind of check out. That's not what it means here. This idea here, I think, is better translated in the English Standard Version, where it says this, lead me in the path of your commandments. So it's this idea of God leading us, but we have to follow. Never in the Christian life are we on autopilot. Never in the Christian life are we just like, well, I'm going to turn off and check out and God's going to do it. It's, that's not how it works. Now, according to Galatians 2.20, sometimes it's kind of confusing for us, where do I end and Christ begin, right? It's he who lives in me, the life I live in the flesh is not my own. Um, but he says, but now the life I live is still me. And so there's this kind of mix, and, but that's okay. We don't need to know how it all works together. Here's what we do need to know is our will is involved, right? That we have a choice, uh, that, that God refuses. Please hear me. God will not use you as a puppet. He will not. God will not use you as a puppet. That's meaningless to him because God wants to conform you into the image of his son. Jesus was not his puppet. Jesus said, I always do those things that please the father. 
And so Jesus, led by the Father, was obedient to the Father, was a servant to the Father. So it is for us. If we're going to be like Christ, we have to be actively involved in that. And so our will must be actively involved if it is to be pleasing to God. And you guys know this because you know that sometimes you have done the right thing with the wrong attitude. You've done what you were supposed to do, and you put a smile on, but inside, I hate this. We've all done it. And you knew in your heart this wasn't what God wanted. And so that's, so that's why God doesn't do it. That's why God doesn't puppet us. Because if he just puppet us, he made us do these right actions, our heart would be far from him. Right? These people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And, and so it is for us. God wants the heart. He always works inside out. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. God wants to change us inside, and then the outward things will change, but it always starts internally. So as we submit our heart to God, then he'll lead us. Verses 36 and 37, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. And so, so here we see this turning, right? And this inclining is really a, a sort of turning too. He's basically saying, Lord, lead me toward your testimonies. Lead me toward your word. Turn me, draw me to that. So, and then at the same time, if we're going to turn to God, we have to turn away from something. So to turn toward God, we turn away from that, which is worthless. So this is really for us, the, the application for verses 36 and 37 is to ask for guidance. God, will you give me guidance to turn me away from covetousness, to turn me away from worthless things, to turn me away from things that don't matter, and turn me toward you and your way? Because think about that. If your son or daughter came to you today and said, I- I've been doing the wrong thing. W- would you help me to want the right things? Would you help me on the right path? What do you think you would answer? No. <laughs> I, I don't want to help you. I-, I want you to have the worst life possible. Or you would say, all that past doesn't matter. I want to help you today. I want to lead you today. I want to guide you today. So if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, doesn't the Father want to lead us? Doesn't he want to turn us? Doesn't he want to guide us? So there's beautiful, beautiful pictures we have here. Verse 38, establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. And so it's a, this, this servant, this psalmist, he has a commitment to God in his word. He, sa- he says, establish your word in, um, to your servant or make it strong in me because he's devoted to fearing you. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is a recognition that God's the master. He could take me out if he wants. I'm his servant. It's, it's my job to do what he tells me to do. And when we have that right relationship, that right perspective, God can do that. Right? You think about a, a majestic war horse that is trained to obey its master. That's powerful. Uh, but, but you know what? Sometimes we can be just kind of, as, as it said in Shrek, a dumb old donkey right? And we're just like stubborn and not want to do anything. God was, doesn't want us to be a stubborn docking. God wants us to be a majestic war horse that he can use for his purposes. But the choice is ours. Will we submit to him or not? Will we recognize him as our master or not? Verse 39, here's a turn again. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Okay, so, so teach me and turn me. Teach me and turn me. So verse 39, ask God to turn us away from things that would cause reproach. 
right? Ask God to turn us away from things that would cause us to lose our testimony. Ask God to turn us away from those things that would, would cause us to, to be ashamed. Matthew 6, 13, Jesus said to pray this, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, turn me away from those things that I want in my sinful desires that are bad for me. Turn me from those things. Help me to want the right things. Final verse, verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. So the idea here in verse 40 is that we should cultivate a longing for God's word. A longing for God's word. And, and I found, this is, this is perhaps anecdotal, but I think that there's, there's a lot of evidence among other people of this. The more time you spend in God's word, the more you'll desire it. The, the more that you seek to understand it, the more that God speaks to you through it, the more that you see how it changes the lives of others and lightens their eyes and, and blesses them, then what's gonna happen is, is you're gonna have it in you. You're gonna rejoice in it. You're gonna joy in it. And, and so we should seek to be revived by him and for his righteousness, or in his righteousness. Notice that, revive me in your righteousness. Please understand, you can be the worst sinner on planet earth and come to God and say, God, I need a change. I need cleansing, I, I need, and God says, I can do that. God can restore the worst person on planet earth because of who he is. He is able to do that. This is not about what you and I can do. This is not about you, what you and I have done. This is about who he is and what he can do through his word. So as we close, I wanna just give you, the, remind you of the three takeaways from our three sections. Number one is that we're servants and strangers. That God is our master, we're the servant, and we're strangers in this world. Don't expect that everything's gonna turn out now like you want it to. Don't expect that it's all gonna work out because you're a stranger here. This world is not your home, you're just a passing through. Your treasures are stored up for you somewhere beyond the blue. And you have to remind yourself in the midst of being a, a servant and stranger that God has promised in his word to work all things together for the good for those who love him for those who are the called according to his purpose. Number two, we need to be revived so we can run the race of faith. You may be in a place today where you're like, I'm trying to run, but it's not working, and I'm too tired, and there's too much going on, then it may be that you're trying to run the race in your own power, and you need to be revived by God's word, by God's spirit. You need those, those innermost being, those rivers of living water pouring out of you. Come back to him. Go to John chapter seven today and say, God, this is Jesus. You, this is what you promised in your word, that if those who believe in you would have these, this innermost, uh, those rivers of living water pouring out of their innermost being, I don't experience this, would you make this good? So you come to him in his word and ask him to revive you according to his word so now you can go run the race of faith. And thirdly and finally, we are to be taught by the Lord so, we might turn, uh, so he might turn us from evil to good. So this world is increasingly confusing. And it's, it's, you know, they call evil good and good evil, and there's really compelling arguments by deceivers, and it's really, really tricky. So if we're to turn away from evil and turn toward good, we need to be taught by the Lord. We need his word so we can know which way to go. Let's pray.